0: This passage that we have for us this morning, that was just read, is an important passage. Um, I, I hope we can just really simply walk through it, and I want you to walk through it with this thought kind of on your mind, on just the interaction that you individually or, or we collectively people have with religion, the interaction that we have um, with our faith, um, how are we using it or what is our interaction with it like? In other words, it's addressing this issue that is important for all of us because as we, when we conclude, I'll try to make this point again, but all of us in here can in some way or another, in some easier forms than other forms, be accused of hypocrisy. And fairly so. No one executes a perfect existence, right? And there's internal inconsistencies regularly with all of us. Anybody can be accused of this. It's an important topic to reevaluate, to, to to find the center again of your interactions with your faith, with the interactions with your walk with Christ. So the discussion this morning from the text is large, in the large scheme of things, is dealing with the issue of hypocrisy. Now, what I want to show you from the narrative portion of how this discussion is framed, is how it's similar to chapter 7. I just want this to stand out to you. As Luke is writing, as our Lord is working, how chapter 7 and his interaction with the Pharisees is very similar or parallel in its structure to how he's dealing with the Pharisees here in chapter 11. If you would just briefly go back to chapter 7, just so we can begin there, just so you see... The occasions are very similar, and they're set up the same way, and we can expect the same kind of outcome or the same kind of dialogue that is going to take place between chapter 7 and chapter 11. If you know in chapter 7, in verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he gets done with this discussion about your outrage that I am a friend of, and the important piece there is a friend of sinners. Because then, after that dialogue, that discussion, he then enters into an episode to make that issue plain. You accuse me of being friends with sinners, and then what can we expect next but an episode of where he proves himself to be a friend of sinners. So, in other words, what he discusses is kind of then on display in an episode that fills out what he's getting at and gives you a real time, real world picture of the discussions that he's having. We have the same thing in chapter 11 that you'll see in just a moment. But notice the same setup as well. So, so in verse 35, he finishes speaking. Verse 36 begins that physical, real-life example of what he was just explaining, how. The setup is the same. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. Now, when we get to chapter 11 this morning, that's the exact same way that our episode this morning starts out. A Pharisee asks him to come dine. In other words, the religious elite are intrigued by Jesus' discussions. In fact, they're outraged later as it develops. They get more and more hostile toward him. But the crowds, as he's speaking, become intrigued. And so a good scholar will invite him over. Come and let's sit down a minute and maybe you can explicate that a little bit more clearly to me. And, of course, then they have ill motive at certain points and times. But the text gives no indication this morning in chapter 11 that the guy is up to particularly any one thing to catch Jesus necessarily. It's hard to know what his interests were. But he asks, after hearing Jesus preach, he asks him, come and dine with me. Same in a similar way, after Jesus gets done speaking with the crowds, you then have the episode set up and then the intrusion, verse 37 of chapter 7. And behold, so see, now we're marking this, this episode is, is, is well-timed. This is what the Lord indeed knew to occur. He's saying, I am a friend of sinners. And behold, a woman of the city. And we've already handled this text before, but this woman is a prostitute. And it makes clarification there between city and sinner. Verse 37, a woman of the city, you know, she was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of oil and then standing behind him uh, at his feet, she was weeping and she began to wet his feet and then she began to wipe his feet and then kissing his feet and anointing his feet with ointment. So, this episode of the woman sitting here doing this, and you remember the picture, of Jesus is, you can picture, as he's seated, his feet are, would have been behind him, kind of sitting down on your knees at table. And this woman is postured behind him, sobbing over him, over his feet and so forth. As we covered the text a few weeks ago, or maybe even months ago by now, it, it was an awkward occasion, um, to say the least. And everybody looking at the table sees this woman behind him and is thinking, what's going on? And you can imagine how Jesus is looking back at them. Kind of one of those, what? What's going on? You know, the woman behind you sobbing, anointing at your feet. What do you mean, what's going on? So he, he's creating this occasion to address not the woman so much as to address the Pharisees thought about the woman. And broader the thought about forgiveness and indebtedness. So he's creating these, and he knew that he was creating this moment by not addressing what was going on behind him. And it gives him the opportunity to make clear the distinctions between those who are ready to receive the gospel and those who simply want to examine it. And they're worlds apart. So also, by the time you get through the episode, look at verse 39, when the Pharisee, um, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, notice how, how Luke writes, he said to himself, so kind of murmuring or perhaps under his breath or just kind of now we know his thought and his comment and his mind, he says this to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, he obviously is not a prophet. Because he would have known who this, what, who this is and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. You know, everybody else at the table knows. It's obvious. She's a sinner. And if he was anything special, he would have at least known what we know. And this is the exact reaction Jesus wanted to get. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then from there, the episode goes into the issue of the debt principle of one's own forgiveness and the need for something outside of themselves for redemption. And so he speaks of this indebtedness, and that's kind of where I'll end this morning, of just the same setup, preaching and speaking, a Pharisee intrigued, invites him over, and Jesus purposefully creates a scenario that is, the least to say, a bit awkward, in order that he might drive home the truth of the gospel. Now, it's important at this point, and you can turn to chapter 11 so that we can just see, now with that kind of thought in your mind, you're going to see something very parallel, very, very similar in chapter 11. But with that thought in mind, as we approach kind of now another Pharisee asking him to dine with him, remember when we were handling that passage, and now as we handle this, who the Pharisees are at this point in time, will help kind of bring clarity to these episodes or these interactions that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. If you were to consider them from almost any angle in the first century, there you're just looking at them in in this context of community, and from any angle, it would have been believed by everyone that if there was anyone attempting to live a godly life, it was a Pharisee. You know, they're looking at these people and saying, yeah, indeed, they, they love God, they're theologically conservative, they're extremely restrictive in their lifestyle, and they're very public because they don't want anyone to miss their theological conservatism or the way that they execute their liturgy, so they are very public about their religious life. So, the... Public then views them as these individuals who, certainly, out of all of us, are certainly dedicated to God and living a life of godliness. There's no doubt. By all accounts, if we were just simply looking at the exterior, each of us would be right to assume that the Pharisees were exactly the type of people that Jesus would have enjoyed the most. Just by pure observance, we would all assume he would want to be with them. He would definitely want to dine with them. He would want to raise up Pharisees to be in his band of company of ministers, to then go out and do the work of the ministry. He would affirm these folks is exactly what we would assume by the external account, yet and all of us know this from all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, his most aggressive rebukes and exchanges were reserved specifically for the folks we would assume he enjoyed the most. His most aggressive and graphic language of judgment is directed at externally religious people. This hits home to all of us at different different levels, different interactions, but the issue of an external conformity to Christianity or an external conformity to a community without an inward vitality or an inwardness inclined to what you are informed to externally This is no small matter. Beginning in our text then this morning, look at verse 37. As I said, he just finished this discussion of the lamp and the body and speaking to the crowds. And there's a lot of people gathering. Verse 37 then, again, similar to 7. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and he reclined at table. So he creates this episode now to join this man at the table. To do what? To expose, as he did in chapter 7, he joins him at table to expose the wrongful understanding of the Pharisees at large as well as to expose the wrongful understanding of the individual who invited him. So again, institutional hypocrisy and individual hypocrisy. And Jesus is going to expose and address both. And this is exactly what he does in verse 38. Look at verse 38 then as the episode begins to unfold. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash his hands before dinner. Now again, Jesus in controlling the narrative, controlling the discussion purposely doesn't wash his hands. It's similar to chapter 7. Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, to be clear about the washing of the hands situation, that is, what's being neglected here by our Lord, as Luke makes reference, the, the man is astonished that Jesus didn't wash his hands. This kind of washing of hands is not... Your, you know, mother's kind of washing of hands. That is, it's, it's, it's not the kind that, that we repeat, I don't know, 100,000 times a day in our home regarding every activity that takes place. That's the parental language. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, you wash your hands. It's interesting, too. The more you say it, and kids are just, I don't know what the standard is of response, but, like, there's less and less concern. The standards get lower and lower as to, in, their, in their minds as to if they even need to wash their hands. At one point, they'll recognize it. If it's completely kegged over, yeah, perhaps I need to wash them. But we always get this response. My hands aren't even dirty. You know, it's like yes they are in so many ways. <laughs> Wash your hands. Um it, that's not what we're dealing with here. It's not our lord kind of wiping them and then asking for some food and then it's just outrageous and scandalous at the table that he is here and his hands are filthy and he has yet to have any manners and wash his hands. How could he be a prophet if he doesn't have manners? That's not the issue at stake here. The washing that the man is astonished by and outraged by is the lack of ritual cleansing. It's religious in nature, and Jesus hasn't done it. The Mishnah, that is a a document that we've covered a few times throughout the book. It's kind of like creates that Jesus context of culture. What's going on here in some of the uh, cultural pieces of the text that we might be foreign to? We've referred several times to the Mishnah, which is just a document that was compiled, um, put together of the oral traditions of the Pharisees, lest they be lost. So we don't want all the good things that's developed along the lines of Pharisaism to be lost on the public, so let's make sure we start recording them. So that's what this, the Mishnah is. And, and to give a little bit of clarity to the hand-washing situation culturally and religiously, why this man, Pharisee, is so astonished at what he's looking at, states it this way. Quote, "...the hands are susceptible to uncleanliness. Thus, if a man had poured the water first upon the wrist and second..." the water went beyond his wrist, and then the water flowed back to his hand, then his hand would become clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand would remain unclean. And then it goes on to describe several other unintelligible washings. Because I can't imagine any of you understood what I just read because I'm reading it and I looked at it and I can't understand it. There's somehow the flow of the water and the way in which you held your hands would determine you know your secret handshake status. Did you follow the code? So it's not simply, you know, running them under the water or using some sort of cleansing agent or anything. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with like looking over and thinking, did he do it the way it's supposed to be done? (gasps) He didn't do it at all. Ah! It's this level of I'm our Then how can he be anything of importance to us? If he doesn't even get the whole idea of ritual purities. So... Once again, before we move on, is just simply this the Pharisee is not accusing Jesus of being physically unclean or lacking proper manners or hygiene. Rather, what he is and will continue to do is to accuse Jesus of being ritually unclean and religiously inappropriate. There is a form to religion and it is to be followed. And if you don't get in the form and follow it according to its principles and rules and regulations, you're not religious. This is the significant piece of the text, this sense of religious hypocrisy. It is exactly what Jesus is here to expose. It is exactly why he didn't wash his hands. He didn't defer like, well, I know you're going to want me to like, do something with the water running in this direction then flip my hands back so it runs this direction and then flick them like this in order to be clean. I, I'm, I'm not doing it because I want to talk to you about it. I'm glad you're, in other words, I'm glad you're outraged because so am I. This is the collision between Jesus and the Pharisee who asked him to come over. You see, hand-washing, one last piece on the cultural context, the whole point of the secret society hand-washing kind of attitude or or the way in which one must cleanse themselves to prove themselves to be clean, the whole entire point served as a self-righteous boundary-making and boundary-keeping device among the Pharisees. In other words, it was one more oral tradition that was passed on as a means to identifying and preserving the spiritually elite. If I watched you wash your hands at a proper meal setting, and I watched how you did it, and the water flowed in the right direction, I knew you were with me, and I was with you. It's a boundary-making device. And it is exactly the sense of man-made, self-righteous codes of conduct that Jesus is seeking to expose. Notice how he does so. Verse 38 through 39, the Pharisee, again, was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner, you know, the way he's supposed to. And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish but inside you are full of greed and wickedness again similar to chapter 7 when jesus doesn't stop the prostitute from anointing his feet he doesn't stop the situation that is developing When she is weeping awkwardly behind him at the table and they're all gazing at him and he does nothing to stop it. Here also in this text, Jesus purposely doesn't wash his hands. He is creating the confrontation. He is creating the reaction. And the Pharisee in this moment proves to be the individual that Jesus was just speaking about in verse 33 and 36. Look up at the text. Verse 39, once again, we'll clarify first. But, so let's jump into 39 about this issue of hypocrisy real quick, and then we'll jump up and see how the, how the episodes are working in tandem. He, in other words, the Pharisee is an example here. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside. Notice the contrast of outside and inside. Because that's what we have in verse 33 through 36. He had just spoken of this. Just like in chapter 7, he said, I'm a friend of sinners. I'm being charged of being a friend of sinners. And then in walks the sinner, and he shows himself to be a friend. Verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Now think this man is here, hearing this the first time around. That's why after Jesus finishes, he says, hey, come over to my house. And dine with me. So connect the dialogue with what this man is hearing and what now Jesus is saying to him also. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful. Lest the light in you be darkness. That's exactly what's going on here. Here he is, right? He knows, he he has this possession of knowledge, this sense of light, this direction of religious life. And hey, by the way, I know it's true because I wash my hands the right way. And Jesus is saying to him, be careful that what you think you know is actually not correct. What you think to be proper and light actually turns out to be ignorance and darkness. Then he ends in 36, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part of darkness, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. You see, your insides will prove to be in the light. The Pharisee here, his eye is the man who is unhealthy. He is full of utter darkness within. That's who he is. His eye, as a lamp, is set upon the wrong thing. It's set upon this form of exterior religion. It's set, and his gaze is upon there, as a device for picking who's in and who's out, including himself. His eye is set upon it, and the result is interior darkness. He's the man. Of 33 through 36. The inside is wicked because his eye is set upon the wrong form. Notice according to verse 39, it's the same thing. Look down in the text of verse 39 and notice the outside. Again, the outside is fine. In fact, if you look at verse 39, look at how Jesus com- makes a comment. Now, you guys do cleanse the outside. Yes. So, so in a sense, he's affirming this sense of, yes, it's true. Ceremonially, physically, and liturgically, you're indeed clean. The public knows it. That's the opinion of everybody around you. If anybody loves God, it's this guy. And he, and he says such. Yes, you guys do. You know, you have a good shave. You are know, cleansed on the outside. You look appropriate. You fit the spot. Liturgically, ceremonially. You're clean. But notice the text. After that is finished, and as far as that can get you, the inside, however, remains dirty. What the Lord points out about the ministers of this time or the Pharisees of this time is they're marked by greed and wickedness. In other words, the indictment would consistently be upon the Pharisees, those whom they thought they were to shepherd, they simply abused. They took from them. They manipulated them. They were driven on by greed and injustice. So again, they're the opposite of the people of verse 36, being wholly bright within they are bright on the outside, but there are death and darkness on the inside. And it is the interior life that Jesus is concerned with. In some, we would say this about the Pharisee who is sitting with our Lord. And, and we'd say this about Phariseeism as a whole. The Pharisee's concern, and this is an important distinction, I want to take a moment right after this just to make an application that I think is important for us to note. So please track my summary here of the Pharisee and Pharisaism as a whole. The Pharisee's concern for ritual purity, right? Mishnah, water goes this way, this way, then this way, then twist your arm and go this way and then this, and then flick three times. This sense of ritual purity disregards the need. And that's a critical piece here. The Pharisee's concern for ritual purity disregards the need for integrity between one's inner life and one's public behavior. Again, let me just read that one last time, and please let it kind of percolate on on the mind. Because, it's, it, it, I'll get there. Wait, I've got to slow myself down. One more time, to read one more time. The Pharisee's concern for ritual purity disregards the need for integrity between one's inner life and one's public behavior. That's the summary of the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, in light of that sense of disregard, I want to make an important note. Because this seems to be I don't know when this language got started, perhaps a long, long, long time ago, and I just never really heard it. But I feel like I've heard it more intensely probably in the last 10 years than I ever did. And again, I might just admit to you, I hear it more in the last 10 years because I've been in ministry now for about that, 10 years. So maybe that's where now I hear it, and I, it was going on all around me, and I just never heard it because I didn't really care about it. I, I don't know. But nonetheless, my point being, it does seem to me to be more intense than ever I had heard. Is the language that I do not need religion, I need a relationship? Or the idea that there is a contrast between, or they're somehow antithetical to one another, is the idea of religion versus relationship? And coming into my mind right now was, I think, like a YouTube video that was a few years ago that just absolutely blew up on the Internet about the guys deconstructing the idea of religion and speaking forward the virtues of relationship. Let me say first on that concept from this passage. This passage does not reinforce the idea that what is most important is this sense of relationship in contrast to religion. This, we would have to say together, is a false choice. This passage is not a critique on organized religion, or Jesus' critique and dismantling of all religious institutions, or the idea of the confessional life, or a dismantling of the importance of of our great creeds and catechisms of the church. This is not the classic text we turn to to say, see, I don't need religion, I need a relationship. Jesus does not prefer that this man be wholly perfect in sentiment, but ignorant when it comes to truth. Rather, what this text is, because again, that would be a false choice if we go down that narrative of religion versus relationship. What Jesus is doing here in this text is providing us a pointed attack upon the idea that such adherence to organized liturgical life enables us to disregard our inner manner of life. That's the attack. In other words, if we felt like coming to church is an institutional device whereby now we can neglect the inner man because we performed our outward or exterior duties, then this text would speak loudly to correct you. But it therefore doesn't mean you mustn't go to church or anything organized or submit to the church at all because it's an idea of an independent, standalone relationship. That is incorrect. But if we attend church and have adherence to such co- confessional life that we think, therefore, we've got our confession correct, we've got our church time correct, therefore, I... Can disregard my inner life, then Jesus speaks, Your inside life is in darkness. One does not do away with the other. Notice how Jesus minces no words in his critique of such an exterior manipulative tactic to use religion as a way to wash the outside while not dealing with the inside. Notice he minces absolutely no words about it. Look at verses 40 again through 42. Look at the the heavy-handed language he uses, verse 4. You fools. Again, your eye is dark. It's unhealthy. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, there's equal concern here. You cannot fake it. He who can see you outwardly can see you inwardly. Fools! Who do you think you're fooling? No one. The one who you're trying to perform the religious rites and duties for sees the inside of the cup. So, 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 who who are you doing this for? Who, Who do you attend for? Who do you hope knows you were in attendance? For what? The one who made you. Knows you, both in the exterior and in the interior. He sees the dirt in the cup. You fools. Verse 41. So very heavy language against a sense of outward duty. If it is correct, eliminates my need for any inward cultivations. He gives them a directive. Verse 41. But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Now, let's see how that develops in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees. For again, you give. You, 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 here's the idea of almsgiving, and here's the idea of tithing. Both of these exterior aspects of religious life. You tithe mint and rue and every herb. But whether it's alms, exterior, or whether it's tithe exterior, this is what you actually are doing. You're neglecting. You're not giving. Yeah, we are. We're almsgiving. Yeah, we are. We're tithing. We're giving. You're not giving. You're neglecting. No, 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 no. No, no, I'm giving all over the place. I mean, ask my neighbors. Well, again, back to the introduction, we'd see, yeah, practically every neighbor would look at him and be like, yeah, I think he's giving. Seems to be. He fits the spot. If there's anybody around here that would get along with Jesus, it's these guys. Yeah, ask my neighbors. Take the temperature of the room. I'm giving. No, you are neglecting. How so? Because you're not giving from within. Verse 42. So again, you you give, but you neglect in giving Because it doesn't come from justice or the love of God. Again, this sense of external religious right or external religious life, the form. Notice the text carefully to my comments earlier. There is no great contrast between, again, having a function and a form and having vitality within. Both belong together. Notice how Jesus doesn't say in the text, quit giving alms. Quit tithing. Rather, he says, let your alms and giving be driven from purity and love from within. That's the application. It's not do away with every form. Mystically, individually, walk your life outside the church and live as an island unto yourself with your privatized religious life because that's a relationship of integrity. That's not true. No, you should be giving from within. Give your alms. This you shouldn't neglect. In other words, Jesus is calling upon the man in each of us, as we would then kind of more broadly apply, to express care for others from within. That is, that it comes from within. A just heart. A heart that is set upon love for God. That arising up from within, we would then physically and externally demonstrate with integrity care and concern for others rather than from external, empty forms that are really nothing more than manipulative tactic. A way to sway the opinions about yourself. A way to grandstand. Virtue signal. Which is the only thing we do well. Again and again. But he's saying, allow what is... Being signaled to be driven on genuinely from the heart. I'm signaling. Right. And as you signal, you're neglecting. Hand washing at this point in time, Jesus uses this, this, this simple form. Of religious life on purpose to not do it himself to create the situation because he's expressing hand washing and almsgiving at this point in time. What you are yourselves are doing in the name of God has become an outward appearance, simply concealing inward wickedness. So he is saying this true godliness that is. From a healthy eye. An eye that is set upon. The right object. Bringing that sense of. Healing and health to the body. Not set upon manipulative tactic. Of greed. Or personal gain. Or reputation. So that somebody else knows you went to church. Or that somebody else knows. That you love God. And you, you posted it in such a way. As to make sure they all know it. He, he, he's saying. No, 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 no. True godliness with in will bring justice in your interactions with others, and that kind of justice that marks the Christian as being wholly set against personal gain and greed. It'll give. It'll be marked by generosity. And the second aspect that he says regarding not just justice that will come from a heart that is set upon godliness or the eye that is healthy as it rests upon its true object, being holy, bright, and light in the body. Number two, it will bring the love of God against wickedness. Look at the text. But woe to you for you tithe. I get it. You give. You you, you tithe and you alms give. And you neglect justice. Why? Because your heart is filled with greed. Verse 39. So instead of justice, you prefer greed. You want to get out of this religious experience. You want to get. I don't know how we all can use our walk with the Lord or, or our facade of a walk with the Lord or our attendance to church, what it gains us as far as compensation or collateral or, or, or what it is that we would get with others. But there's a measure of interior life there that Jesus is pointing out. There's greed in the heart. There's gain. There's a desire to gain from all of this. And instead, there should be a heart of justice and generosity. And then he says in 39, you're full of wickedness. And that contrasting is verse 42, the love of God. Now, he gets back to the religious life right there at the end of verse 42. These you ought to have done. That is, to love justice. To be generous of heart rather than filled with self greed and advancement. To love God rather than to love wickedness. And you should have done all of these, and then notice the very last statement, without neglecting the others. In other words, religious life does continue. It's not an either or, there's a right and a wrong. Ecclesial life continues, sitting under the preached word, receiving the sacramental table, tutoring and guiding your children in the way of godliness, seeing them be baptized in the church, grow in their faith. This matters. No, I just need, you know, my privatized time independently. I'm my own minister. I'm my own sacramental meal. I'm my own song and sing. No, no, no. Indeed, from the heart, you should have done both. Not neglect one. I want to conclude with just two observations then about hypocrisy Um, from this passage. Just conclude with two final observations. Again, I started in the beginning by acknowledging. I, I, I trust you acknowledge it and own it just as much as I do. And that is that each of us can easily be accused of certain types of hypocrisy. I mean, that's easy. I I mean, it doesn't take much of anything because you're human, you are at some level hypocritical. Right? That, That just, it is. No matter who is taking the moral high ground, everyone, if they were willing, would admit that everyone has a level of hypocrisy where there's just a lack of perfect conformity. But with that acknowledgement, I do want to provide two final concluding comments, and that is, number one, we need to be careful. And that is, I I would ask you this morning in hearing the message uh, from this text, we need to be careful, even to the point of maybe even just for today, for a season of time in prayer, we need to be careful to the point of self-examination. Now again, I'm not talking about navel-gazing and, and you know, saying how terrible of a person you are somehow achieves this. What, what I'm saying is true and genuine meditation before the Lord. Remembering the law and the gospel. To be careful to the point of self-examination, to see if we are using our connection to the church as a means of creating a religious illusion About ourselves. Kind of that sense of the why. To clearly lay bare before the Lord your own heart. Are we leveraging religious life in order to create a spiritual illusion about ourselves? some measure of a masquerade. This he says to you, foolish person. Do you think he who made the outside of your cup knows what's on the inside of it? Didn't he make both out and in? The second observation, I would just simply say this. Pray. That is that each of us would pray... For ourselves, for our family, pray for others, pray for your ministers, pray for your church members, your friends, pray sincerely that we do not fall into the temptation. Because let's say, we're like right now, you think, no, I, I genuinely I love the Lord. And yeah, sure, with the caveat, yeah, someone could point out a hypocritical thing I've done. Sure, right, whatever. But the point is the heart, its trajectory, its sincerity, its desire to rest upon the gospel and live faithfully. If that is the case, then pray that you would not fall into the temptation of living one way publicly and being something entirely different before the Lord. There's a minister who this last week um, was caught in a sordid affair and um, there, was, there was, I don't know all the details, there, there was an aspect of an overdose, hospitalization, hospitalization, understanding of what brought here, and then this minister hanging himself while he was there in the hospital because of what was to be revealed, and that was an affair with multiple people taking place throughout his ministry, and this man's texts are we- read widely. From all understanding, a long, sincere ministry before the Lord. And it's not like the only story that you could tell. Many of you, if you were to give testimony or stories, that you'd, you'd say multiple things like that. Many of us have, have traversed through the life of the church. Pray that we not fall into temptation of living one way before the church and conducting a life that is absolutely contrasting that privately before God. Foolish people we are. Did he who not make the outside make the inside also? Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your work of grace to be evident in our hearts of repentance that we would be careful in our examination and take the text seriously of thinking we can somehow cover up through religious life what's going on in the interior life. We all, I, I can't imagine anyone here before the church would say that they are without error or without sin. But Lord, strengthen us against creating a life of sin And hiding behind dutiful obedience to the church as a way to resist repentance, confession, receiving the sweetness of the gospel. And rather we would die in our sin, die in depression and anxiety and and broken relationships and die in fear. Slowly. Slowly again and again and again. God, call us forward before the light of your word to repent the sin that so easily entangles, not looking ourselves proud upon another, but let us take warning that we too would walk sincerely before you. And as sin does creep in and up, Lord, let us confess it, repent of it, and grow by the grace of the gospel that is so freely offered to us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.